The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your eyes rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when salmon claims millions, when justice... And welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Nidaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is March 9th, 2016. Baltimore police are in the news again, this time after one was secretly recorded viciously assaulting a teenager in school. We'll talk about that and more tonight. In State County, New Jersey, the place where I was born and raised, a lab technician for the New Jersey State Police Office of Forsonic Science has retired early after being caught falsely identifying a substance as marijuana without conduct- conducting the proper test. Laboratory Technician 2, Camelot Camp, Shah of the New Jersey State Police Laboratory in Little Falls, fraudulent testing overall may have affected 7,827 drug cases on which he worked. Fallon also indicated the Little Falls Crime Lab providing testing for other law enforcement agencies across the state, not just the state police. Taking it even further, in a new paper for the journal Criminal Justice Ethics, Roger Copel and Megan Sachs look at how the criminal justice system actually incentivized wrongful conviction. In their section on state crime labs, they discover some astonishing new information about how many of these labs are funded. A North Georgia police chief and an officer have been arrested and accused of arresting people on fake charges and then reducing the charges to collect fines, authorities said Wednesday. Police Chief David King, 58, and Officer Blake Sheff, 26, of the White House oh, fitting of the White Police Department, were charged Wednesday with false imprisonment, theft by extortion, and violation of oath by a public officer. Georgia Bureau of Investigation spokesman Greg Ramsey said. Further, Louisiana is the world capital of incarceration. It locks up more of its prisoners than anywhere else on the globe some 1,341 out of every 100,000 people. Now, the Pelican State is in the throes of a crisis that is certain to propel its already astronomical incarceration rates to new heights. It's Public Defender Service, a network of state-funded lawyers that provides legal representation to the poor Louisianans, is in a meltdown. With most of, most of its district offices set to cancel all new cases or close down entirely by next summer. Providence, New Hampshire, March 4, 2016. 
given citizens a huge tool against corrupt laws and false incarcerations, a New Hampshire House committee has approved a bill that would make jury nullification an official aspect of the state legal system. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Vanessa Gathers. A Brooklyn Supreme Court in New York vacated her wrongful conviction from a deadly robbery a quarter century ago. Vanessa was exonerated Tuesday, February 23, 2016, after prosecutors concluded she made a false confession to a detective whose tactics have come under question. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Matilda Jocelyn Gage, 1826-1898. She and her husband were abolitionists, and their home was reportedly part of the Underground Railroad. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We can we invite you to join the conversation by calling us at one six four one seven one five three six six zero. Extension is five four nine zero three two pounds. Peace, brother Scotty. How's it going, man? Um, just struggling, man. Today's been a challenge with um a lot of technical issues that we started experiencing last night with some uh, cyber attacks on the server. Um, not experiencing those today, but for whatever reasons, my communication system is just acting crazy. But I'm hoping that um, I got everything fixed for uh, this program right here. Man, I, I wanted to take a day off so bad today. I'm so exhausted from care, you know doing caregiving for my wife who uh, took a few steps yesterday. Uh, not too many, just a few, but she's on her way and recovering. But yeah, I'm just burnt out. My wife's like, take the day off. Scotty told you last week you should have took off. I'm like, you know what? Integrity is continuing on, even when you don't want to. And that's what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, Max. And but, I'm you know, like, um, I have found myself at times having to take a week or so off uh, because you can get burned out. You know what I'm saying? You can get burned out and then, you know, your batteries are depleted and then you're not, you know, you're, you're not. You're not on top of your game is what I'm trying to say. So you do got to right. take those opportunities to recharge your batteries, but I'm not mad at you. You got a passion for this work, so I, I well, completely understand. The timing is important to me. With, all, with the election going on, we rarely get an opportunity like this to influence national policy and the conversations that are being held, the narrative. So we have that opportunity, and I'm trying to take advantage of every single moment of it. Well, you know, we have already had an impact, as you have pointed out from time to time. I mean, you personally met with Bernie Sanders' uh, 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 team when they came down there to South Carolina and had those conversations about legalized slavery and human trafficking. I mean, we've been on, on air for how long? Four years? Five Almost years? five years. Yeah. And, and there was no abolitionist bills in Congress. Uh, you know, uh, during that time period. So now at least we can point to a bill that would abolish private prisons and jails as the fruits of our labor. And, of course, it doesn't totally eradicate slavery, but it does inflict a a very, uh, um, I would say, a I want to say mortal wound, but I don't think that's the right word, but it would strike a very tremendous blow at the heart of the private prison and slavers in this country in the private sector. I agree with you. It would be the first time in 150 years that they have had to go on the defensive for anything at all. And uh, that is a huge step forward. 
for the past 150 years, we just let it go. And for the past uh, 45 years, we just silently watched as it exploded, not only nationally, but internationally. And now we're facing a, a prospect of 130 million bodies alone just going through our jails in the next 10 years. And of course, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the shoulders upon which we stand. We have modern abolitionists that was out there doing the work since the 1960s. I'm speaking of Angela Davis. Um, um, then I'm thinking about Lee, Lee Wood in the book that he wrote in the 70s, I think is when that book came out. called What was yep. the title of that book? Prison Slavery? Uh, Cat. I believe it was called. No, Caps is the name of the group that they had, but I, I think I can't recall the name of that book that was written by Lee Wood and um, I forget the woman's name who helped co-author that book. So I just want to acknowledge, you know, the shoulders upon which we stand. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, just a new age with new tools at hand, and we came along with the ability to be able to use these tools differently. And fortunately, that made a difference. Yes, we, we had the ability to come on and talk about it uncensored. You know, uh, right. uh, things are not going to be edited out that we say on this program and then distributed, as as is the case in mainstream media and whatnot. And nobody's you know, is controlling our message. So, you know, I don't want to minimize the impact that I believe, you know, uh, we have had along with our abolitionist comrades in the group move to abolish 21st century slavery on Facebook. Indeed, man. Indeed. And speaking of the group uh, move to abolish 21st century slavery, that is a group that is meant to be able to uh, act upon things and come together and make changes or, or contribute to you know, some of the time and effort. Educate and, uh, each other, sharpen up our talking right. points. Yes, yes, indeed. And there's a couple of things that we put out there we uh, would like to invite someone to participate in. One is uh, the America is Ferguson series. We want to finish that off. And because of my internet connection, I'm just not able to do the research that it takes. I can provide someone with all the links they need and the format of how we put it together. We just need a volunteer to help us finish this off. Um, that's one thing. And also, I'm working on another uh, multimedia project which will put out some very powerful information exposing the prison slave system. And uh, I'm looking for somebody who's uh, skilled in video production or even in illustration to collaborate with me. You know, that's, that's, you know, why I say it, it is important that people uh, support our fundraiser through the Black Talk Media Project, because if I was able, you know, to convert uh, my trailer to a media center, uh, I can get college students to do all that. And plus, we will have, you know, the budget to purchase all the equipment we need and, and you know, do a top notch broadcast, video cast and, and whatnot and just bring these young people, you know, into the fold. And of course, I want to duplicate that all over uh, this country. Well, if anybody's interested in offering their services, whether we're doing video production or illustration or even and the research aspect of the Ferguson with America series, just contact me either on Facebook or send an email to prismaticdreams at gmail.com, L-T-R-Y-S-M-A-T-I-C, dreams, at gmail.com. Max, if you will allow me... Um before we jump to our uh, first story, I want to address something that I heard today on the Black Talk Radio Network on uh, Tiny Free and Friends earlier today. 
when you say Tanya Free and Friends, there's usually some issues, man, because <laughs> uh, you have some very big differences with at least one person on that program. And I'm talking about that Tell one person, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we've heard this often before, and this is not an attack on him, because uh, I don't know what he knows. I don't know what his mindset is. I don't know what he's been exposed to. Well, I know he's been exposed to a whole lot of right-wing talking points because that's what I, I, I want to talk about. But, you know, I heard him several times, and this is the black conservative panelist, the black Republican that's on her panel. And it's a very good panel. They have lively discussions and, and everything like that. Uh, but today he was saying that, you know, this country kept repeating this country was founded on God. This country was founded on Christianity. This was found, you know, just kept kept. We hear that all the time about this nation being founded on God and, and whatnot. And and so, you know, at one time, you know, I used to be uh, very much into the Christian church, almost became a um, I wouldn't say a pastor, but a minister. Um, I actually have given sermons in the pulpit when I was involved in organized religion and whatnot. So I'm going to put on my pastor's hat or my minister's hat for a minute and speak to this silly notion that uh, the United States was founded on God or founded on, you know, uh, 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 some kind of um, spiritual principle that is, you know, something that we should be, you know, re uh, uh, trying to uh duplicate or whatnot but anyway when he said that immediately I think about George Washington I think about Thomas Jefferson and there there is a, a, a quote you know from the Bible from Matthew 6 verse uh, chapter 6 verse 24 no one man can serve two masters either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money. That is from the New International uh, uh, Version of the Bible. And let's apply that to the early days of the United States and how it was founded. It was founded on slavery and capitalism. We have, you know, people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and, and, and some of the other enslavers, founding enslavers, on words. Uh, uh, to convict them on that they did not found this as no kind of righteous nation founded under God, you know, all that kind of garbage because their God was money. They were capitalists. And I was quite surprised. I shouldn't have been surprised. But when I was reading some of the uh, uh, writings of Thomas Jefferson and his little formula that he came up to increase his capital, that's the first time I had seen the word capital, as in capitalism, uh, used, you know, by somebody during that time period. So the evidence would suggest that this was not, this was a nation that was founded on the love of money to increase slaveholders increasing their capital and their wealth. What was the capital? enslaved persons all right used to uh uh um uh you know increase their wealth and i just don't it's it just you know it just it's a pet peeve of mine and i'm not saying that i'm the most intelligent person on the 
on the face of the planet or anything like that. But I do have pretty good reading comprehension. I do pay attention to the evidence. I do do research and, and a lot of historical research. And so, you know, for a black person or anybody, you know, to keep pushing that myth that this country was founded, you know, as a Christian nation. Well, they must be talking about the Old Testament where, you know, in the Old Testament, the the uh, people were ordered to wipe out entire races of people like they tried to do to the Native Americans here and to enslave other people. So if that's what they're talking about, then they're correct. And I stand corrected. But that is not what they're talking about. So I just wanted to get that off my chest because it's been on my mind. I hear you on that one, Scotty. Um, these were indeed some wise men, but they were also sociopaths at the same time. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, the powers that be, particularly the colonial powers, branched out throughout the Americas uh, to do nothing more than to exploit the land and the people. And that view comes also from a selective quote from, or not really a quote, but Thomas Jefferson uh, did talk about abolishing slavery um, and and he felt that the British, you know, uh, should abolish slavery and whatnot. But that, that's because, you know, most of his money was being tied, uh, paid in taxes. And so, you know, they're taking that out of context. This man was an adulterer, a pedophile. And 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 an enslaver. So let's quit repeating uh, this nonsense. Um, by the way, we do have Johanna joining us. Johanna, your mic is open. Peace and welcome home, there, Johanna. Peace, peace to the abolitionists. Peace to the abolitionists. Yeah, pity oppressors. Man, it has been some interesting information coming across this uh, radio wave since I've been. Been on the program actually listening. Uh, good to uh, be with you, brothers. With the audience, of course. Um, Max, of, I, I mean, it's it's always on my heart to say something to you. You know, just I know what you all got going on, so you know, definitely my prayers. Uh, it's good you, to hear you sounding in good spirits, bro. So, um, Scotty Reed, that science you just dropped right now. I mean, I, I hope that, that the people were paying attention and can understand the weight of what you just said, I mean, reading those historical documents from the founding father's own, you know, hand, it's the first time you see capitalists, you know, just mentioned openly is what we're really here for. That's, that's, I don't know if anybody else is, is dropping that science like that. So, you know, my hat is definitely off to you for, for your research and, and your due diligence, man. There was Drop slavery you. that they were afraid of, Scotty. Like Thomas, Je Thomas Jefferson in particular was afraid of particular slavery, but it was the slavery that was being offered by the king of England. Uh, at one point he said, single act of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of a day, but a series of oppressions begun at a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of ministers too plainly proves a deliberate, systemic, plan of reducing a people to slavery, Thomas Jefferson from white of British America. And he wasn't talking about blacks. He was talking about his white ass being afraid of becoming a slave. Or and white men only. Crap. Yeah, and white men, because we know they were, they were misogynists as well. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, and of course, they were, they were always afraid. They were always afraid of, of Nat Turner rising up, because they were, you know, 
uh, constant rebellions, even though we don't read about it in their history books. The history is there if you research it. So they that was of their concern, too, of getting their heads cut off. And, and um, maybe that's what we need today to put that fear back into the hearts of these enslavers of, you know, having their heads chopped off. But, you know, I'll, I'll leave it there. It's funny you say that because a friend of mine asked me today just because I quoted Malcolm X where he said, you know, if uh, a man's talking about what he won't do to gain his freedom, he really doesn't want freedom. And uh, somebody exactly. asked me, would I kill an innocent little girl for freedom? And I guess they misunderstood what Malcolm was saying and what I was saying. I wasn't talking about for me. I was talking about for my people. But my answer was real simple. I will kill your ass for freedom. <laughs> like, there's nothing off the table that I'm taking off the table. I appreciate all the abolitionist ancestors and everything they did, from Matt Turner to Harriet Tubman to John Brown. Whatever it was they did was necessary and right against a system of oppression and slavery that could only be equated with the devil himself. Yeah, you can't serve God and money. And that's their God, the mammon. So, yeah. So let's before we run out of time, because, you know, we got Lotus Place coming up. Let's go ahead and jump into these stories. No doubt. Uh, we'll start off with uh, our Baltimore story. Baltimore is, is several stories wrapped up into one. Apparently, recently, the cops have been uh, under the scrutiny again because a student managed to uh, record two officers. One is a female and one is a male. Both of them look like people of color who are knocking the, the hell out of a teenage boy inside of a school. Uh, if you haven't seen the video, we've made it available on New Abolitionist Radio. It's only a few seconds long. He's uh, cursing him out. He's smacking him like he's, a, like he's in a fight with a full-grown man. And you can hear the, the power behind it. And then at one point, he even kicks him in the face. Um, this is not something new. As a matter of fact, from Think progress, there is a story that says the criminalization of Baltimore students explained. And I want to read a little bit of that to give you a perspective of what we're dealing with here. The REACH Partnership School in Baltimore made headlines this week when a school police officer was seen slapping and kicking a male student. The police officer had been placed on administrative leave in the Baltimore Police Department, a separate entity from Baltimore School Police Force, had launched a criminal investigation. I just want to add also that there was a conclusion to this so far. We have a video available for it. I think it's only a few seconds long when they play it after I read this. But uh, furthermore, it says, attorneys and juvenile justice experts in the area say that violent police encounters are common and contribute to the city's robust school-to-prison pipeline. This is not an isolated incident of brutality. Attorney Jennifer Egan a public juvenile defender in Baltimore who specializes in school arrest who thinks progress. She meets with students every week and every month who are assaulted by school officers. Wow, that's a lot of students in one city, man. This is a woman who firsthand says it. She meets with these students every week and every month who are assaulted by school officers. Students, however, are the ones who pay the price. Police were first stationed in the city schools in the 1990s when tough-on crime a lot of Clinton's policies were implemented in the super predatory myth that black youth were irrevocably violent and morally corrupt fueled mass incarceration. Juvenile crime in Baltimore was dropping, but a Maryland statute created a school police force that enjoyed all the powers of a law enforcement officer in the state. These officers 
have their own chief and command center and do not operate under the BPD. The statute empowered the Board of School Commissioners to create and implement policies to regulate school officers' behavior and determine how the police force should be used. Doesn't this echo what Hillary Clinton said about the hundreds of thousands of police out there where you'll be able to determine what they'll do? Well, beating children in schools is one of the things they do. According to Egan, administrators have failed to establish these protocols and the presence of school police has grown. There are now 144 officers stationed in the city's schools. That combined with zero tolerance policies really lead to over-reliance in schools and criminalization. She set up today's school climate as a result. Minor disciplinary infractions, including dress code violations, are now handled by officers, not teachers and administrators, students who commit low crime level misdemeanors such as a disturbing or, or such as disturbing or threatening people or school property are targeted as well. I'm just going to finish off with this last quote and then we'll talk about it. You can imagine how many times a day a 14-year-old ch children is saying, I'm going to mess you up. Or you just wait for all sorts of things that kids say in jest, Egan explained. You can imagine how easy it is to arrest and charge someone with, distur with disturbing a school when they're issuing a threat. Did you want me to play this video? Yes, uh, this will be what uh, the police themselves are saying about this and how they're handling it. That was it. Oh, that was the video of the actual uh, attack. So you heard the audio of it. The video is so much more powerful. I thought you were going to play the uh, police response. Okay, uh, I must have clicked on meeting. the wrong link. Where would I? Which link am I looking for? It's on our. Uh, it's down towards the bottom. Baltimore officers charged in school. Okay, pulling it up now, sir. On USA Today, we may get an ad first. Uh, we'll see. I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting on it. Why are you queuing that up? I mean, the uh, the video is like Max said. It's just showing it graphically, so all them slaps you here. That's actually a child's face, left side, right side, and then he, I think he kicked him in his ass, like maybe okay. down some steps or close to like the top the, of the uh, stairs. The investigation, like Officer Anthony C. Spence has been charged with second-degree child abuse, second-degree assault, which is a misdemeanor, and misconduct in office, which is also a misdemeanor. The second-degree uh, child abuse is a felony. Uh, Officer Severna Bias has been charged with second-degree assault, misdemeanor, and misconduct in office, which is also misdemeanor. Both officers turned, invest, turned themselves in last night at the central booking facility, and they posted bail and were uh, released from custody last night. The Baltimore City School Police will continue to handle the internal investigation into this incident. There's nothing more, more important or sacred than certainly taking care of our young people. And as a result of this, this certainly pierced the, the trust that actually existed in, in that particular school. I want you to know after talking with parents, they're very committed to moving forward, and I'm very committed to hearing their voices as we begin our internal look as ways in which we can certainly support our children and families in a more effective way. I was, uh, I was appalled. I was disappointed. Uh, it really cut right to who I am as a person. I'm charged to take care of our children, and here we have certainly some folks that are doing things that were inappropriate. So every emotion went through me, everything from outrage to disappointment. 
And that's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we're going in for an internal investigation. That's why we're looking at ways in which we can make our practices better. That was it. I'm calling bullshit. I'm just calling bullshit. I know exactly why these children are being abused and why they're being incarcerated. In the entire country, out of all the states in the union, there is only one state that charges more money to incarcerate a teenager than Maryland, and that is New York. In Maryland, the cost to incarcerate a single teen for one year is $300,000. Let me repeat that. $300,000 to incarcerate a single teen for one year in the state of Maryland. That's the reason right there our children are going to these jails and prisons and why these slave catchers care very little about how they treat them. Because as far as they're concerned, they're just property to be put in these cages and sold to the highest bidder. Just like the kids for cash uh, scandal that happened in Pennsylvania. Um, here is um, the thing. And... You know, even candidates that I have a favorable view and in uh, pundits and whatnot um, that I have a favorable view of that I think have a grasp of the overall issues. But this is something we've even heard from the Black Lives Matter people. We've heard it from other activists, policy wonks and stuff like that. But there is this call that we need, you know, communities of colors to be policed by you know, people that look like them. Well, there you go right there. Exhibit A, I would like to submit to you, black cops beating the hell out of black kids. So yep. th that's Exhibit A right there, that that is not a solution to the problem. Uh, black people have been serving as police officers since the 1960s. Uh, black cops might have been more than one was uh, uh, on the raid, part of the raid that murdered uh, a Chicago Black Panther uh, activist, Fred Hampton Jr. Uh, excuse me, Fred Hampton, Chairman Fred Hampton. All right. So black people have been on these police forces following the slave catcher's creed and whatnot. And so uh, that right there should be more evidence that, again, and I pointed out about Walter Scott, black cop, filed a false police report backing up the white cop who he saw shoot uh, Walter plan. Scott in the back as he was running away all right so i hope i hope that people are taking notice it's not and and i have to fall back on what Neely Fuller Jr said and i play his clip from time to time it's not black versus white all right yes there are cases where that is the case all right, but in terms of 21st century slavery and human trafficking and these slave catchers, it's not black versus white. It's justice versus injustice. Because a lot of these black people in these positions uh, don't have a problem with practicing injustice. In fact, they may even be getting paid over time to do it. So I just that's all I got to say on it. And I'm glad they were arrested. And both of them have a record of violence. Studies show that uh, people of color tend to be even more violent than their white counterparts, not only in policing, but also as prison guards. Letting out that same frustration that those who are not carrying a badge or, you know, this authority uh, of enforcing the law 
maintaining uh, order, the people that are not on that on you know that that side of it, their expressions of that same you know the poor people and which are predominantly the black people, uh, so black folks that's got that stress. They're uh, exhibiting their stress and their problems and dealing with it, self-medication, different types of falling outs in the, in the general public, so the violence or what have you that's in the community. So, I mean, these are the things, these are the ways that they're acting out, but you see the same kind of propensity for violence, striking out against people who are in your close proximity. This is what you see the law enforcement side of it, what they do, but they can get away with it. There is a, a conspiracy going on here, and it's not a theory. As I pointed out, we're showing you the steps of what occurred. You have the zero tolerance policy. You have 144 officers who, some of them probably who have seen battle on the battlefield in military service within these schools with children operating on a zero tolerance policy, criminalizing our youth, and then sending them to these juvenile detention facilities that are charging $300,000 a head per year. That is a crime of the highest order, and it's legalized slavery and human trafficking being done to children. And if you can't see that, if that $300,000 price tag does not wake you the hell up, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. What city did we report on last week? That was, uh, was that L.A. that was saying it was like 235000 244000 in L.A. And as a matter of fact, I've recently released information in a video I've created called The Cost of Living which is on New Abolitionist Radio right now. I just put it up there for you. And it gives you exactly how much it costs to incarcerate a child state by state. So you can see it with your own eyes. You can look at what your state is charging right now to incarcerate a child for one year. And at high risk for, you know, all of the, the highest mortality rates for their age across all races and of course, being poor, again, that high risk is going to put you, you know, whether it's from death to going through the courts to, you know, the, the violence that tends to be in the community. Like I said, the, the people that are dealing with the stresses and joblessness and poor education and situations that are destroyed because of this mass incarceration, modern day slavery situation we're in. So the people that are left behind are dealing with these situations and, and consequences and like I said on the law enforcement side they're able to act out against other people and it passes for just doing their job yeah. and this goes from a physical standpoint like what we're talking about with beating this kid and that you know the violence against inmates and all of these things we talk about but it also goes to the psychological standpoint of abusing people you know Max just the intimidation. mentioned I'm sorry go ahead, uh, uh, go ahead Johanna I thought you were done <laughs> No, no, you no, you good. Oh, what I was going to say is, you know, Max mentioned zero tolerance. And when he mentioned mm -hmm. that word zero tolerance, again, my mind went to these two individual cops record. One of those cops had already been mm -hmm. fired from a right. county job. All right. As a cop. And so he just, be, you know, moseyed on over and applied at a different department because as Max stated from this story that the school police is so it's uh, uh, separate from the regular police or the Baltimore police or the county police from which he got fired from then the other one uh, and then one of them actually committed violence against a, a female officer on the job 
grabbed her by her face, punched her in the face while she was sitting in the car, and then prevented her from leaving. So that might have been a domestic violence situation. The female cop who has been charged, she was charged with simple assault for throwing a liquor bottle at her boyfriend who was breaking up with her. Uh, they dropped the charges because he wouldn't cooperate and he didn't want to press charges against her. But there was nothing stopping the police from firing these people. What about zero tolerance for that kind okay. of activity? And then when I was reading the domestic violence aspect, uh, I have stated on this program and on Black Talk Radio News that police uh, engage in domestic violence against their own family members at nearly four times the rate of the general public. So is that any, I mean, that, that should be a no-brainer right there. If you ain't, if a dude or a woman ain't got a problem with beating up someone that they claim to love and live with and, and having sex with and all this, if they will do that to a person they claim to love, how much more will they be willing to do something to somebody they don't even know? on the street what about zero tolerance in within the police departments well there you have it and uh we got to get on to our next stories uh try to squeeze them all in tonight but definitely look on the page new abolitionist radio on facebook and check out these stories about what's going on in Baltimore. look at the video that i provided for you that shows you in text and in video how much it costs to incarcerate our children and you'll understand what we're dealing with not about black and white. Like Scotty said, it's about justice and injustice. What are you for? I'm mm -hmm. for justice. That's what Neely Fuller said. And, and one last thing, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the abolitionist candidate for Baltimore City Council, Christopher Irvin, running for District 5. Y'all make sure y'all support him. Word. You know, I, I reached out to uh, uh, the um of uh, Brother DeRay, who's running for mayor in Baltimore recently, hoping to be able to talk to him prior to this incident about the cost that is being charged for Maryland to incarcerate his teenagers. Maybe he doesn't know. And if he's running for mayor, he should know. And uh, I have yet to be able to be in contact with him. I guess he's a little too busy these days. But if you're hearing me today, Brother DeRay, or somebody that knows him, reach out to me. I want to talk to you about what's going on in Baltimore. There's some things you need to know. And please check out the interview I did a couple of days ago on Monday with Christopher Irvin. Again, he's running for Baltimore City Council, District Number 5. He is a abolitionist candidate who uh, has appeared on this very program. And he definitely uh, knows what the root problem is. And that's slavery, as he talked about on, on the program. And, and they had a tremendous victory as he was one of those who worked on restoring the voting rights to felons. The governor tried to veto it, but they were able to get that veto overridden. So great job, Christopher Irvin, the abolitionist candidate for Baltimore City Council in District 5. Much love, my brother. Salute. Now, got your back. Salute. The next story comes from my neck of the woods, where I was born and raised, where my children are spending life in prison right now, State uh, County, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, we've been talking on this program about how we think that of the 2.4 million people sitting in prison, maybe 1.6 million of them shouldn't even be in there. And we keep showing you how tens of thousands of people are being railroaded into these jails. Not only children, as we just pointed out with these zero-tolerance policies, but adults 
male and female as well. We told you before about the incident with lab technicians falsifying these drug reports in order to get a kickback not only for themselves but for their department. Well, here's another story coming out of State County, New Jersey. A lab technician for the New Jersey State Police Office of Postonic Science is retired. Oh, man, that's what they, they always do, right? They get to retire. Nobody gets arrested. Early, after being caught falsely identifying a substance as marijuana, without conducting the proper test, on Monday, Deputy Public Defender Judy Fallon issued a memo to Public Defender Joseph Krakora explaining Camel Camp Shah's falsified report. Laboratory Technician 2, Camel Camp Shah, the New Jersey State Police Laboratory in Little Falls, has been found to have dry labs, suspected CDS specimens. Basically, he was observed writing test results for suspected marijuana <laughs> that was never tested. According to New Jersey Advanced Media, Ellie Honig, director of the Division of Criminal Justice of the Attorney General's Office, said in a February 22nd letter to County Prosecutor's Office that Shaw failed to appropriately conduct laboratory analysis in a drug case. The letter released from the Attorney General to the news outlet on Wednesday disclosed that Mr. Shaw was observed in one case spending insufficient time analyzing a substance to determine if it was marijuana and recording an anticipated result without properly conducting the analysis. The letter advised prosecutors to disclose this information to defense counsel, New Jersey Advanced Media reported. The former technician's indiscretion in that singular marijuana case has now called into question thousands of drug cases he conducted tests for, as the one in question was only the first observed instance of his dishonesty. As Stalin noted, Mr. Shaw was employed with the lab from 2005 to 2015. Obviously, all of his results have been called into question. In Bissette County alone, the universe of cases possibly implicated in this conduct is 2,100. The prosecutor's office is still in the process of identifying them. Their plan is to submit for retesting specimens from open cases, she said. Shaw's fraudulent testing overall may have affected 7,827 drug cases on which he worked. Fallon also indicated the Little Falls Crime Lab provides testing for other law enforcement agencies across the state, not just the state police. Fallon wrote that the prosecutor's office for Cassette County has not yet formulated a strategy to deal with the fallout of the falsified report. She indicated the difficulty of identifying all the potential cases whose outcomes were influenced by the inaccurate or downright absence of testing. The larger and unanswered question is how this impacts already resolved cases, especially those where specimens may have been destroyed. Uh, I'll put that up on the page. It's pretty long. You need to read this. Uh, it comes down, really, the bottom line is that they are doing this for kickback that they're receiving uh, from private prisons who are paying for positive results on drug reports. We've reported before that there are 14 states across the United States that have this type of incentive going on. That's 14 states that are railroading people into freaking prisons with falsified drug reports. Brothers? Well... Annie Dukin comes man. to mind, so that's, she wasn't just know a one-off. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what I'm sitting here thinking. Oh, 
Looks like the brown people are taking the fall again. They, they, they're complicit in the crimes of the higher-ups. So this is an opportunity, like the Asian cops, to be able to see that you're expendable judicially, uh, administerially, in, in the, the, the application of the rules and the laws for, for committing murder, that whether it's reported uh, through videotapes of people that were at the scene, who see you choking out people that's begging for their lives, who see you chasing down and hunting people in the street, unarmed people that haven't done anything. We've seen it on videotape, and, and these people just go, you know, on with their careers or walk out of jail on, on bail. And then you have the Asian cops that have been catching jail time. Daniel Holtzclaw, he's associated with the Asian community, and the brother that's in uh, Brooklyn that, that uh, he got a manslaughter charge as well. So here we see in the lab level, a little bit smarter minority group that is in the lab and handling things behind closed doors affecting thousands and thousands of people like this. So you see one get killed and you see 10, 20, 30, 40,000 possibly affected by another in case, like you said, with Annie Dukin and now here's another one. So, I mean, these are things that are kind of strategically showing up too on the radar. So these communities are being compromised as well. So, you know, we need, we need uh, allies on every level. So like we had with, uh, the, the Asian sisters that came out last year were two of the abolitionist allies that we had that came out that said in the article in the Huffington Post that slavery was never abolished. Yes. And then we had the, uh, Sister Naomi Mirakawa come out and give us the, the, the clear definition of the Ferguson report and the DOJ report on police brutality and told us that, you know, policing never has had any such thing as police brutality or any such thing as racial profiling. The job of policing has always been this way. It's not like there's some special case for when these things happen. It was designed to do this. So these are people that have shown themselves allies. So when they see that they could be compromised professionally and kind of put out there to take the fall and be the only ones to do time and maybe you want to come in on a, you know, on the ally level. You know, there is another part of this story that I think I should read. Uh, it tells you what the conclusion is so far. And it also says something that should make everybody want to grab a pitchfork and a torch and head down to their courthouse and start poking and burning. They say New Jersey advanced media reported that several attorneys who deal with criminal matters said Wednesday that it wouldn't likely affect the large number of defendants who pleaded guilty to drug possession. This assessment apparently does not consider the deep flaws of plea bargains in the American justice system, which makes up 90% of court outcomes in the United States and often results from defendants' fears that they cannot fight the power of the court, leading even the innocent to take plea bargains. The drug war specifically has led to astronomically high rates of plea deals and prison time, all for individuals who have not committed violence against others. In spite of the great burden of his actions, uh, he has been placed, uh, in spite of the great burden his actions have placed on individuals and the justice system at large, Shah has not been charged with any crime. Uh, Asphaltine said Shah was suspended without pay on January 12th and is believed to have retired. Shah enjoyed a salary of over $100,000 per year for the 10 years he worked for the state police. There you Dude, go. Your tax 90%. dollars is worth it. 
how the hell can you even have a Sixth Amendment when we're talking about over 90% of all cases and in plea bargains? There is no Sixth Amendment. And if there's no Sixth Amendment, the Constitution has been shattered, and somebody needs to do something. Yep. You're so right, sir. I mean, that you... I mean, at this point, we've been going over the numbers for years, Max. Y'all been doing it longer than I have. And, you know, we, you know, when you listen to this program, get your notepad out, you know, and we just might as well just take it to task because it's not personal. We're talking about systems that are in place. So, you know, this is what we're going to see. The numbers are going to show every week. So get your notepad out. Get on your computer, get your whatever you do, take your stats down, and, and, you know, let's just take it to task. What is going on, and who is it affecting, and how many times does the system fail? And when the system is failing, at its, at its most violent interaction with the people to get caught up in it, when it fails, it's deadly. And that's a pretty large percentage of the time that it's deadly. So then as you keep going on through it with the different levels of punishment and, and just the, the impunity, I mean, it's just destroying communities. So at every level that it contacts people, it just it just kills your opportunity to live. Yes, it does, man. And when we say the about a thousands, Max, about a thousands, tens. Of I thousands. mean, yeah. we're not giving you we're not giving people week to week stories that are exclusively about like we're talking about one person with the abolitionist uh, in profile or with the person on the modern day underground railroad, somebody getting exonerated. That's you know for the most part, we'll just have one person. But in these stories that we cover throughout two hours every week, we're talking about tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and trillions of dollars. And we're talking about systems. We need people to wake up to this, man. Brother Johan, and if you don't mind, um, mm -hmm. the next story is coming up. It's just a follow-up on this, but taking it on an even larger level, uh, where the stories from the journal Criminal Justice Ethics uh, regarding these state time lapse. Uh, if you don't mind taking that and sharing it with our, our listeners. I'd to see if I can find it, man. It's uh, right there in the planning page, and I'm posting it on New Abolitionist Radio right now if you just want to go right there. It's the first page. So, yeah, we've been talking That's about awesome. this for years, showing you the examples of it, one after the other, and how these are multiplied. Tens of thousands of cases. Just in the past year, we've seen a record number of exonerations alone. Uh, on average, three people are being exonerated every week right now in the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Wow. So here we go again. So as you said, you're showing it on another, on a different level of uh, Radley Balco. So. This is a story talking about uh, the study that's finding the state crime labs are paid, how much they get paid for uh, conviction. Yes. New, the new study finds the state crime labs are paid per conviction. That's Did you crazy. hear that, people? Paid per conviction. So where's the incentive lie? <laughs> On There's conviction. No for you. <laughs> yeah, for you to get anybody free, you want them to go to prison. Just like public defenders want to get as many cases under their belt as they can because they get a flat fee per case. Right. It's crazy. So we're talking about pay, pay for prisoner and pay for <laughs> conviction. I mean, that's a two-on-one fight right there. Wow. I've previously written about the uh, cognitive bias problem in state crime labs. This is the bias that can creep into the work of crime lab analysts when they report 
to, say, state uh, police agencies or the state attorney general, if they're considered part of the state's team and performance reviews and job assessments are done by police and prosecutors, even the most honest and conscientious of analysts are at a risk of cognitive bias. Hence, the uh, countless and continuing crab, uh, crime lab scandals we've seen over the last couple of decades. And this, of course, doesn't even touch on the more blatant examples of outright corruption. It says uh, in a new paper for the journal, uh, for the journal Criminal Justice Ethics, Roger Koppel and Megan Sachs look at how the criminal justice system actually incentivizes wrongful convictions. It says in their uh, sectional state crime labs, they discover some astonishing new information about how many of these labs are funded. Funding crime labs through court-assessed uh, fees creates another channel for bias to enter the crime lab analysis. In jurisdictions with this practice, the crime lab receives a sum of money for each conviction of a given type. Ray Wickenheiser says collection of court costs is the only stable source of funding for the <laughs> academia crime lab. The only source of funding. Man, damn. I mean... Okay, so the headline on the on the article obviously is in big bold print, like you know, fat black in bold in print. That sentence looks just like the same font as everything else in the story, but when you read that, what it says just stands out in flaming bold letters. The collection of court costs is the only stable source of funding for the Academia Crime Lab. Ten dollars is received for each. Now, this is the only stable source of funding, but look at how they're breaking it down. $10 a piece. We're not talking about each one is worth ten, fifty, a hundred thousand. I mean, I think a good DUI case is worth about ten grand for the average person. They're getting people off. Wow, for ten bucks a head and making a fortune. Is received for each guilty plea or verdict from each speeding ticket. Jeez, fifty dollars for each DWI and drug offense. Jeez. Their only stable source. Okay. In Broward County, Florida, monies deposited in the trust fund are principally court costs assessed upon conviction of driving and boating under the influence or selling, manufacturing, delivery, or possession of a controlled substance. Several state statutory schemes require defendants schemes require defendants to pay crime laboratory fees upon conviction. North Carolina general studies require for the services of the state or crime lab or, or local crime lab, the judges in criminal cases assess a $600 fee to be mm. charged upon conviction. Gee, Christmas. And remitted to the law enforcement agency containing a lab whenever the lab, quote unquote, performs DNA analysis of the crime, tests of bodily fluids of the defendant for the presence of alcohol or controlled substances. Jeez or analysis of another controlled substance possessed by the defendant or the defendant's agent. Man, if they catch you on a DUI just like right at the limit, maybe two drinks or something after work, you automatically got hit for $600. Because yep. they're going to make you take a test, and they're going to charge you $600 for that test plus everything else. Wow. Illinois crime labs receive fees upon convictions for sex offenses, controlled substance offenses, and those involving under the influence, uh, being under the influence. Uh, Mississippi crime labs require crime laboratory fees for various conviction types, including arson, aiding suicide, and driving while intoxicated. Uh, we'll wrap it up here. Similar provisions exist in Alabama, New Mexico, Kentucky, New Jersey, Virginia, and until recently, Michigan. So they changed from this to just poison in the water. Other states have broadened the scope even further. Washington statutes require a $100 crime lab fee for any conviction that involves lab analysis. Kansas statutes require 
offenders to pay a separate court cost of four hundred dollars for every for every individual offense if forensic science or laboratory services or forensic computer examination services are provided in connection with the investigation. Jeez. In addition to these already listed, the following states also require crime lab fees in connection with various conviction types, Arizona, California, Missouri, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. I'll leave it there, man. I'm going to put the link. Or you said you already got the link. Yeah. Give, give us that last paragraph after that, man. It really says a lot. Jeez. Okay. Think about think about how these fee structures play out in the day to day work in these labs. Every analyst knows that a Every test result analyst. implicating <laughs> implicating a suspect will result in a fee paid to the lab. So everybody working there know what the hustle is, man. Yep. Every one of them. Wow. Every result that clears a suspect. <laughs> Come on, people. You, finish the sentence with me, everybody. Every <laughs> result, <laughs> every result that clears, it doesn't bring us any money. But everyone that gets convicted, yeah, we get paid. <laughs> so this is your job. Yep. Man, I can't finish that, Max. That, you, you, it, it says they're literally being paid to provide the analysis to win conviction. Their findings are then presented to juries as. The careful, meticulous work of an objective scientist. Again, bullshit. It's all about the money, ain't a damn thing funny. Man, is this set up? I mean, I know that we have a programming page, and I definitely appreciate the work that y'all putting in. In my absence, you know, I mean, the audience still has no idea that I really haven't been able to put as much into, you know, what we always do with the planning and Max, you and me talking to each other and, you know, everybody staying in close contact. We almost doing this like telepathically or something, surely by the grace of God, because we hardly even get a chance to talk. But look at how this is laid out. Scotty comes on and drops a bomb in the first two minutes of his monologue that just outshines every news source that's in this country right now reporting anything that has to do with the widespread sufferation and genocide. Let me just be direct about what's going on, people. This man just tells you that the documents of our founding fathers say absolutely, just blatantly in your face, capitalism, one nation under our God of money, and here we are talking about this tonight. All these many years later, where this is what the judicial system on a municipal level, state level, is affecting tens of thousands of people on a constant basis. Max tells you, what is it, a hundred and twenty-something million dollars? Was it uh, this? Or no, 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 twelve point four million people in and out of the jails. Yes, just the jails alone is nearly thirteen million people a year. Man, where's the calculator? 13 million going in and out and getting exposed to these fees in all of these states. Right, hundreds of dollars each, like 600 here, Jeez. 400 there, 100 there. And guess what? If you can't pay, guess what happens to you? Straight from jail, jail. Do not have to go. And that's just some of the fees. That's not counting the bail fees, the lawyer's fees, uh, any other fees that may come along. Wow. They rape you and your whole family, your whole community. They suck everything out of you they can. Not only the moment that they start incarcerating you, but throughout your tenure in these prisons, they suck it through the uh, video conferencing where you have to video visit your family and pay for that. Uh, the commissaries, everything. Right. Every part of the prison is nothing but one great big vampire. 
<laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to New Abolitionist. Tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we're here on this program talking about modern day slavery and human trafficking, and we are not talking about metaphors. We're not ca- talking about kind of like slavery, we're not talking about mental slavery. We're not talking about economic slavery. We're talking about men, women, and children being hunted in the streets legally like wild game, being killed and abused, being captured, and then being placed in cages, and all of it for profit. No other reason but to make money that this whole country is built on from the very beginning. Capitalism. Using us as the commodity. Capitalism, man, that's really the essence of capitalism. You know, and when I hear people be trying to talk about, oh, they socialists, oh, they communists, white capitalism is, you know, I ain't never lived under a communist government. I ain't never lived under a socialist government except for, you know, the elements of socialism that is within the United States, you know, public schools, public roads, public hospitals, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, the essence of this country, again, is is capitalism as it relates to uh, uh, capitalizing off of non-white bodies. Exactly what's going on. And, Slavery. Uh, it's not just the systems. These are individuals who are responsible for this. And we're talking about people on every level of law enforcement. There are no, there are no innocent people involved in this. If you are involved in law enforcement or in the judicial system, and you're involved also in prison for profit in any way, shape, or form, you're a freaking criminal enacting crimes against humanity. That's what you are right now. And I'm going to uh, give you an example of two criminals, uh, which is going on out in Georgia with the police chief and the officer who was arrested on false imprisonment charges. Scotty, would you like to handle that story? I put it right up on the New Abolitionist radio page, so it's the first thing up if you just want to quick. Yes, sir. Uh, let me pull it up. And uh, this story comes to you from abcnews.go.com. Uh, A police officer arrested for false imprisonment charges. Man, I was like tripping when I read this story. I was like, man, police chief and officer arrested on false imprisonment charges. Uh, this is a story that was published by the Associated Press. A North Georgia police chief and an officer have been arrested and accused of arresting people on fake charges and then reducing the charges to collect fines, authorities said Wednesday. Police Chief David King, 58, and Officer Blake Sheff, 26, of the White Police Department, that's what it say, <laughs> of the white police department were charged Wednesday with false imprisonment, <laughs> theft by extortion, and violation of oath by a public officer. George, Georgia Bureau of Investigation spokesman George Ram- Ramsey said. He said the allegations 
stem from a period between December the tw uh, 2011 and April 2015. So full four years. Okay. Uh, Ramsey said that one woman was arrested in 2012 on a charge of felony deposit account fraud, a crime Ramsey asked she didn't commit. According to Ramsey, the woman had been told previously to accept a disorderly conduct citation, pay a $1,000 fine, and authorities then would not pursue felony state charges. He said another woman was arrested last year on the charge of committing cruelty to children. Ramsey said that the woman also did not commit the crime, but that an arrest warrant had been sworn out for her. Ramsey said the woman's husband was told the family could accept a disorderly conduct citation, pay a $1,000 fine, and police in turn would not pursue felony state warrants against the woman on the charge. Ramsey did not immediately return email questions and other details weren't in his statement. The arrest come after the FBI and Georgia investigators executed search warrants in January at the White Police Department in White City Hall in the state's northeast region. King and Chef are being held at a county jail. It's unclear if they have attorneys. Wow. Literally kidnapping people off the street, <laughs> putting them into slavery, and holding them for <laughs> ransom. Wow. You know, yeah. there's a part in the very beginning that is very telling, uh, where it says that uh, he would get the fake charges and then reducing the charges to collect funds, right? Now, the sheriff or the chief of police and this officer don't collect the funds. Those get paid to the, uh, to the officers there, to the state-run officers there, where all of that is processed, the fines and fees. So that money doesn't literally go into their hands. That means there's other people involved wow, on uh, the clerical level yeah. who are, are, are passing this money back to him. Yeah. This is the same thing we saw in Ferguson where they said, yo, we need more money. Can you get us more money for these tickets and stuff? And they went and got $3 million versus $2 million or $1 million or whatever it was. Mm -mm -mm. Good, good wow. catch, uh, Max. I didn't even consider that as I was reading. I was thinking, well, I was thinking, and I was like, now, I know these people wasn't coming up with $1,000 cash and going to the police department and paying them, you know, because I paid fines and stuff before. Like you said, you go to the clerk of court. So mm -hmm. there is a wider conspiracy here, you know, and, and mm -hmm. we would, we do need more details on this. Well, this is only from a few days ago, March 2nd, 2016. Right. So I'm pretty sure this is going to be unfolding for a while. Hopefully somebody out there listening to us who has a connection to this case will bring this point up that these uh, police officers were not taking cash. Somehow that money was coming back to them in a full circle. Who was involved in that? So here we go again. Another system. <laughs> Another system. See, that's the thing. That's what makes this cause so worthy and so strong and able to stand through all the tests of time as long as this evil is presented then this good will be there to put it in the light because this is evil and this is wrong on every level so here we go again a system you don't have to talk about individuals even though they offered up to individuals at the white police department the chief <laughs> Dave King so he's 58 years old. He's a grown man. He's been doing this. He knows what they're doing is wrong. And then uh, uh, there's an officer, young rookie, probably a veteran, expert shooter, and, you know, 
whatever on his way, making good salary, and they're doing this, and they get sacrificed. Because, like you said, this is obviously a higher power working behind all of this and collecting the money and the whole thing, man. So another system. We don't have to hate individuals, even though there's some individuals that are pretty evil individually, but these systems are what's killing us, too. Yeah, they're destroying us. I mean, like, it's just blood money. That's what it is. Blood <laughs> money. Like blood diamonds. Blood money. Right. We're making a fortune off our backs and our blood and our children and our debts and our suffering and standing blindly by and, and justifying it somehow by the good you do versus the bad you allow. But is there no line in the sand? As we said before, there's no point in history we have we can remember or know of where police in unison said, we will not enforce these laws. No, I don't care who wrote I don't care what congressman or senator said it's okay. We are not going to enforce these laws. Now take your ass back to Congress and work that out. I have never heard of that. Even the fugitive slave laws are followed to the letter. The laws that apply to the rest of the general public, absolutely. No, they they don't go against them. They enforce them no matter how inhumane, no matter how inconvenient, you know, no matter how just whatever. But the laws that have ever existed to put them in check, to create oversight of their operations, to hold them accountable for lives that they take literally with their bare hands in some cases and weapons and everything else and massacre people. See, when the law applies to these types of things, oh, hell yeah, they fight the law. And they say we won't enforce it. And we'll trump up charges and we'll uh, mess up evidence and we'll, uh, who knows, maybe we'll even uh, kill the witnesses and we'll do everything we can to make sure the law is not enforced when it applies to our accountability. But now the rest of y'all, yeah, we'll, whatever they tell us to do, we'll do. We're just doing our job. I found that it doesn't matter how many we report on, 100,000, a million. There is no number that seems to be uh, the line in the sand for the officers across the United States. There's no number. You could say 10 million, and they'd be like, okay, whatever. We're still just doing our job. Right. And that's the thing. When it's theirs, though, they'll see a line in the sand. If any kind of way we ever get law, if we can get a lobby raised where we can pay some lobbyists and we can get uh, some of these uh, the people we got right now, that's even uh, candidates. I mean, think of the difference, Max. You you talked to Bernie Sanders people, and they gave us a shot and got the message out there. So we got, you know, it was mentioned and the subject came up and the and the and the problem was addressed and early on that was something a good sign or something going the right direction. But imagine the difference if we had a lobby, and I'm talking about some money for real. What if yep. you like the connections you had and you got a chance to talk to his people and you see we was able to affect policy. So that's a historic thing that happened. But imagine yeah. we got, you know, we got some yeah, money. I, I agree with that. And that is, and now I'm speaking, um, right now I'm speaking as a black voter. All right. That is the purpose of I am one of the million dot com. Go check out that website. Uh, one million black conscious voters and contributors. And that is, that is what they are attempting to do. And they actually made removing the exception clause from the 13th Amendment. A uh, part of their plank, a uh, part of their platform, and calling for the end to slavery. Um, I interviewed James Klingman, one of the co-founders of that movement, about that very thing, and, and I'm in regular contact 
uh, with them and, you know, having conversations by email. But I'm trying to make abolitionists, not trying to make, I, I don't want to seem, make it sound like I'm forcing it on them because they embraced it, on, you know, uh, on their own and, and whatnot. But, you know, I'm just always trying to keep that at the forefront of our mind. Like the other day they were talking about reparations and I was like, let's end slavery first. Reparations come after we end slavery. Right you know and and whatnot um but now i'm speaking as an abolitionist all right uh we know that our group moved to abolish 21st century slavery is not a race-based group okay it is for everyone we have members of of various religious uh, uh affiliations various political affiliations various belong to different parties political parties uh, subscribe to different religions or are, are, are different ethnicities and, and races and we all have come together for one thing and that's to end slavery we look just like the the uh, early abolitionist movement uh, in this country a very diverse movement and and you know sometime down the road maybe that's something we need to look at as becoming a formal a formal entity to where we then can uh, interject into politics, raising money to, you know, have our own new abolitionist super PAC and calling out yep. the candidates on their support for slavery or promoting uh, whatever proposals that will end slavery. So, yeah, we, we got to move into that direction. Yes, sir. We need an abolitionist platform, just like we had in the 1800s that caused us to get to the point where we almost ended slavery, had it not been for Lincoln's betrayal. But, uh, yeah, we need a platform. We need uh, anti-slavery societies again. You can start forming those in your local uh, local chapters in each state, anti-slavery societies. The most important thing you can do right now as an individual is to simply change your mind. Stop looking at this thing as something that you can fix to reform because it's not something you can fix. It's a crime against humanity. It's called slavery and human trafficking, and it can't be reformed. It can only be abolished. Indeed. Well, that brings us to our next story. You can see how this railroad goes. There's an underground railroad that leads three people a week to free, and there's another railroad that leads 800,000 a year into slavery. And that other railroad is our death. The next story coming up is in regards to Louisiana. And you can see that it's a picture uh, from The Guardian, and there's a picture on it of Alfred Woodfox, who, uh, of course, was just recently released after 43 years, most of it in solitary confinement. And it says, Louisiana's public defense system could collapse without renewed cash flow. The meltdown could push state's incarceration already the highest in the world even higher. The state of Louisiana is the world's capital of incarceration. It locks up more of its citizens than anywhere else on the planet. Some 1,341 out of every 100,000 people. That's twice the U.S. national average of 716. Nearly three times the per capita rate in Russia, 475, and nine times that of the U.K., 148. It's even substantially higher than North Korea, thought to be around 800. Now, the Pelican State is in the throes of a crisis that is certain to propel its already astronomical incarceration rate to new heights. Its public defender service, a network of state-funded lawyers, 
that provides legal representation to poor Louisianans is in a meltdown. The most, with most of its district offices set to cancel all new cases or close down entirely by next summer. An assessment by the Louisiana Public Defender Board obtained by The Guardian warns that by July of 2017, as many as 33 of the state's 42 districts are likely to be so short of cash, they will be forced to stop representing clients. I just want to pause there and remind you that even allowing that to happen is unconstitutional. Yes, it you is. You are constitutionally guaranteed to have a fair and speedy trial to be represented by a lawyer if you can't afford one. It, it, it's in your right. So for them to even say this might happen is wrong to begin with. That should have never even came. Now, further with the story, and then I'll close it up real quick. Eleven of those districts may be forced to shut down by this October. The system is on course to collapse by next summer. We will have no public defense system in any sense of the word. We are talking about the wholesale destruction of a public function, says Brandon Buskey, a state staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. If the state continues on its current course, experts warn that tens of thousands more people are likely to language in jails as a result of lack of legal representation. The pattern has already been witnessed in major cities such as New Orleans, where the public defender service stopped taking on new cases in January. They've already violated your constitutional rights in New Orleans. It's done. It's already done. Where the hell is the Fed? In New Orleans. Wow. In New Orleans, we already have dozens of people held in jail for weeks on end without conviction and no way of getting themselves out. We are literally trapping people in jail with no way out, Buster said. Um, you can read the rest of the story on New Abolitionist Radio. I'm pretty sure you understand what is happening here, that they are setting the stage for people to be sent to prison for profit in the capital of the prison, prison capital of the world. It's being done right there. The first place where the first private prison was built, right there in Louisiana. You know, uh, that's, that, like you pointed out, it's unconstitutional. The Constitution uh, guarantees you a right to counsel. All right. But how did we get here? This isn't something that just happened overnight. There has been a stead, steady, over decades, a steady attempt to defund the public defender's offices in states all over the country. That's why we keep hearing about you know, these public defenders having huge caseloads and whatnot. See, they don't have, even have enough money to hire the attorneys that they need to handle the caseload. And, but what, but the prosecutor, the state fully funds the prosecutor's office. So now here we have in this story in Louisiana where they not even, you know, uh, uh going to pretend like, you know, they're about justice. Oh, we just not going to fund it. We don't got no money for it. Oh, but you can, you know, come up with money to pay for, you know, positive drug tests and come up for money for this and money for that. And, and you know, all of this, all of these ticket writing schemes and to raise the coffers. But you can't find money for, you know, public defenders and whatnot, and, you know, which people have a, a constitutional right to have be represented uh, uh, so that, you know, we don't have a situation where only uh those who can afford attorneys will have them and those who can't afford them will not 
You know, I've even and I've even seen it um, here in the county that I live in and whatnot, where they go through extraordinary lengths to make sure that uh, you cannot afford your own attorney before giving you an attorney. And then they even set it up to where you make payments. You know what I'm saying? It's based on your income and whatnot. Well, you still going to pay for your attorney. So uh, we shouldn't be surprised at this, uh, but we should be concerned. All right. Uh, 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 again, you know, this is a, a constitutional right. Well, to the law and order people out there, and I'm not trying to say like, you know, I'm some kind of guy um, who is uh, all about disorder and violating laws and whatnot. But like H. Rab Brown said, you know, we are neither legally or morally bound to their laws because their laws keep us down. And we see how much they even uh, care about following their own laws and most sacred con uh, uh, document, which they say is the U.S. Constitution. It's sad, man. It's so hard sometimes to hold back the emotional content that I just want to let out. But I understand there's a bigger picture here, and there's an end game in sight. And for the first time since the Emancipation Proclamation, slavers are on the defense and have to defend themselves in the uh, world sports, so to speak, where the world is watching them and they're very aware of what you're doing to us. They can see the human rights violations. Don't give me nothing about your Constitution. I ain't trying to hear about how much you know about the Constitution when we've got these violations happening continuously and it seems we have an illegitimate, ineffective federal government who is unwilling to do anything at all to step in and solve these problems. Are they cowards? Is that the case? Or are they just so damn corrupt that they're in on the deal. The end game is death, man. The, the end game is 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 it's sinister. I mean, what 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 signs do you have that are you know a bright shining light of something that's not anything other than just deadly on every front? And this is crazy. These states are broke. Louisiana is at budget shortfall, as I said, of a, of a billion dollars, but. Okay, 1.6 billion. Ain't that what it said? Okay, well I understand that, and and that's bad for the state, you know, what have you. But don't you realize that there are states that we are reporting on all over the country that have been, Illinois, been over a hundred billion dollars in debt. And what has been going on in Illinois, people? Can you connect dots when a state is a hundred billion dollars in debt? With a, you know, going to have a budget shortfall, rather, then where do you think they're going to turn to to get money? And that state has has leaned on Chicago and the surrounding areas for how many years now to generate revenue at an incredible rate by imprisoning people, kidnapping people, putting people through the justice system, and sitting on in prisons and getting that. In other words, is it just me or are we losing Johanna? No, it's something going on uh, with the communication system. Hold on, let me see what that is. Okay, Johanna, we got you back. Okay. All right. Can you still hear me, though, Scott? Yes, we can hear you. Oh, okay. But, yeah, I mean, the point has already been made. Just state to state, these states have no revenue. They don't, they're they facing budget shortfalls, and the main capital that they have is untapped until you get down to the last living person is the is the human resource so run them through the system and generate some money ferguson 
is America. <sighs> yeah, <clears throat> the stats are beyond uh, reason. We're talking about 95% of all people who are incarcerated right now have never had a trial. Never had a trial. 95%. <clears throat> Sitting in the jails right now, rotting, waiting for their day that they may never see in court <clears throat> consists of 90% black and Hispanic people. 90%. Those 90% black and Hispanic people, when they do go into a courtroom to just see a prosecutor and not a judge, will see a prosecutor population base that is 95% white, with 80% of them being white men who will stand and preside and make deals, backroom deals, with public defenders who just want to rush you through the system so they can get their case-by-case -case paychecks who will rush these black and brown bodies right into the prison to enrich the coffers of their communities and counties. Not your communities and counties, their communities and counties. Just like this chief of police we just spoke of a little while ago. Hmm. And generating revenue. Big time revenue. I mean, how do you, how do, what do we need to do to, like you said earlier in the other, earlier story, talking about the uh, political side of it to influence legislation and to put something out there. So, like you said, where's the line in the sand so we can see where the line in the sand is? Because when we come with a real law with real teeth, you'll see them stand up and say, this is it. Nope, we're not going to let you do this. But in these kind of cases, you know, again, systems, the entire states. Conspiring, literally, when we talk about private prisons, sent out 30 uh, letters from what was it, 37 states, or was it more than that? Did uh, the private prison CCA sent out to the states and offering them to take over the prisons? I think it was Back 45 states. Okay, so here we see the states facing budget shortfalls or whatever presidency was in place at that time in these same kind of conditions, and the private prisons say, hey, we got a great offer for you. And it, we've been on the roll ever since. These people are generating billions and billions of dollars every year providing incarceration. So this is generating revenue, and it's sucking revenue out, so we've got budget shortfalls. But these are the people that are collecting the money. I mean, it, we just we talk about it. It's a conspiracy, yes, because there's several people that are conspiring to make these things happen on a quarterly basis so they can report revenue reports that show increases so everybody can have faith in fiat currency. I mean, I, I don't. I know we're talking about slavery, and I don't want to be too deep and conspiratorial and all of that. And sometimes I, I try to kind of hold back, and because people need to be able to follow what you're saying. So right. I know that you don't want to just go too deep and 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 over-explain, and people just can't follow whatever. But people, there, we're dealing with it on this kind of level for real. When you get ready to really face it, your faith in the fiat currency that is not backed by anything has to main, be maintained. So these people that are generating this fake currency cannot have it just not come in. They have to have some kind of way to keep bringing in this money. And they have human resources that they can use. They can just throw people into a freaking machine and make them slaves. This is the whole point of this program every week. This is a problem in our society. You are currency. Have you seen those uh, farms that they uh, get the meat from where they said they used to have like 25,000 family farms that butchered meat across the country and contributed to the meat system in the grocery all over the country. Well, now it's something like 12 butcheries for meats in the entire country of 400 million people providing cows every day or whatever. 
So these are huge lots that are just millions of acres. It's just cows everywhere, just messing up everything. And this is how people are seen in these states where they have huge billion-dollar shortfalls. Hey, we got people. Put them in jail and generate billions of dollars. I just, I just hope people make the connection, man. I don't want to go on and on. And they'll do it at ten dollars a pop, like we yes. showed here on this program. Ten dollars a head. Max. Thank you, thank they'll you, do it bro. Five cents a head. As long as they're making money, it doesn't matter. Thank you, thank you. Because I was really hoping that I wasn't going too far, but it's like it's that simple. But maybe it takes that much to get there. But you picked it right up. Thank you, thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, like I was talking about, Thomas Jefferson came up with a formula. Yes. Came up with a formula that if he increased, you know, for every uh, uh, enslaved baby born on his plantation, it increased his wealth by four percent. I think it was that that he wrote, and so they follow in similar formulas today, man. It, it, it's really oh. not rocket science. It's not rocket science. Let's just look at their 10-year plan of reducing 60, prison population by 60,000 and put it in perspective, right, when it comes to economics. <laughs> There's a, a 13 million people going through the jails every year. If they just charge every one of them one single dollar, at the end of the decade, they will have made $130 million. That's a lot of money, just for one dollar per person. So they'll mm. find a way to get one dollar per person because that's $130 million in their pockets guaranteed, if not more. And we know in some stories we have reported, they'll keep dipping back into the same population several times. Right, right, right. 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 And pass out these no-bid contracts where you start seeing potato chips only sold in prisons. You can't buy them nowhere else. They're only sold right, in prisons. Right. Or, the key you know, group. Uh, the key right. group. Part uh, owned by the people that, that own Enterprise Rental Car. So the same every time you rent a car, you contribute it to people that that have a no bid exclusive contract with like seventy percent, I think, of the prisons across the country. They generating more money doing that, providing vending to the prisons than they are off of renting cars. Well, you said earlier, what can we do? And uh, we've got one more story to do before we get into uh, a final segment. And I think Scotty is going to like being the one to present this one. And that is from Providence, New Hampshire, just recently, March 4th, my great aunt's birthday. They, uh, they give us nice. this is a huge. Hello? Yeah, we oh, might yeah. have to, we might have to do it after the break. <laughs> All right, well, when we come back from the break, Scotty's going to give it to you. You're listening to the new Adoration Radio. We'll be right back. kind of uh, round the night out, there is something that can be done. And it was just uh, released out in Providence, New Hampshire, March 4th, 2016. Give the citizens a huge tool just to pull up 
laws with false incarcerations, the New Hampshire House Committee has approved a bill that will make jury nullification an official aspect of the state's legal Yeah, this comes to you from the blog.10thamendmentcenter.com, their blog. So I guess you could go to 10th Amendment center.com but again max always posts these stories to our new abolitionist radio facebook timeline um which also goes out to the um what is what is our twitter account at n a r n slavery right yep okay so that's n a r in slavery that's new abolitionist radio is what the, that stands for n a r in slavery on twitter uh, Providence, New Hampshire, March 4th, 2016, the New Hampshire House Committee has approved a bill that would make jury nullification an official aspect of the state legal system. A coalition of nine representatives introduced House Bill 1270, which is HB 1270, in January. The legislation would allow a defendant or defense attorney to request that the court instruct the jury that it has a right to utilize jury nullification. The bill includes language the court must use in instructing the jury. Even if you find the state has proved all of the elements of the offense charged beyond a reasonable doubt, you may still find that based upon the facts of this case, a guilty verdict will yield an unjust result, and you may find the defendant not guilty. The House Judiciary Committee voted 9 to 8, man, that was close, uh, that HB 1270 ought to pass. The bill will now move on to the full House for a vote. A favorable committee report increases the chances of passage in the full chamber. Now, they go on to give you a jury nullification overview, but this is something I have studied for years, so I'll just, you know, use my own words to explain to you what jury nullification is. Uh, in terms of slavery, we have talked about in the past about the 1850 Fugitive Slave uh, Act, which will also get mentioned in our abolitionist profile. And so what, it, what was happening was that people who were operating the Underground Railroad, for example, let's say I had a house um, and, you know, I was hiding uh, people who had escaped slavery and then you know I, pass, I, I I give them shelter give them food and supplies uh you know so that they could go on their journey usually to Canada or something like that well if I got busted then I could get charged with a crime under the Fugitive Slave Act so uh what these juries were doing mainly in Pennsylvania was since they were and these communities were anti-slavery uh, what they would do is when a person would be charged under that, they would just simply vote not guilty, thus nullifying the law. OK, and so I have talked about that over the years. I have heard uh, other people talk about it a lot. There is actually a jury nullification uh, nationwide movement, but it doesn't get a lot of press. Um, for example, when. um I think it was Colorado, might have been somewhere else, but you had these guys out there passing, I shouldn't say just guys, but you had some people out there at the courthouse who were passing out jury nullification literature, all right, 
and they weren't in the area where the jury, you know, anybody that sat on the jury, you got a special parking area and, and other places where you enter. At least that's like that where I live. And so, but they weren't, you know, approaching any jurors that were sitting on a case or, you know, going for jury duty to be picked. They were just giving it to people that was coming through the front door. You know, for whatever reasons, they were going to the courthouse. And so they tried to charge those people with a crime. So there is a nationwide movement uh, 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 that isn't highly visible uh, to inform people about jury nullification. Look, you don't you you know, I like what New Hampshire's doing here and giving those instructions to a jury, because in many states you are prohibited from giving those sort of instructions. And that is why the jury notification movement tries to educate people before they get on the jury that you don't have to convict people of victimless crime. You know, this woman's poor. She got three kids to feed. She ain't had a job in a year, you know, because she got laid off her last job and ain't no jobs coming back. And so she had to go out there and sell her body on the weekends just so her kids could have some food in their belly. Well, I think it would be unjust for me to send this woman to prison on a prostitution charge and break up her family that she's trying to hold together, doing the best that she can. That's just That just doesn't seem just. Yes, y'all proved her, your case. Yes, she did sell her body, you know, to uh, uh, another person or whatnot. But I don't think that she should be going to jail. Show me the victim. I don't see no victim, you know. Uh, uh, so since there's no victim, I'm voting not guilty. All right. And so um, we also promote that in these nonviolent legislated drug crimes. Things that have not been crimes only until politicians acting on the orders of corporations and the history is there. We talked about it over the years, like uh, the Hirsch family that had the uh, uh, newspaper empire. Well, he had tree farms, right? He had a whole bunch of acreage of trees that he got the paper to make his newspaper. So he wanted to outlaw cannabis because cannabis, uh, uh, you can make paper from cannabis, and it's a weed. It's easy to grow. It grow, you know. And he was like, "Man, you know, then I'll lose my money on these trees, all this acreage. If people use these trees for paper and, and, and move to start using cannabis, you know, uh, uh, produce paper and whatnot. And so, you know, a number of racist reasons of why they legislated drug crimes to target people and whatnot, going back to the 1930s and reefer madness and." And, you know, just all of these this racist code words to pass these laws. Well, you know what? I don't think that part. Yeah, I know crack is bad for you. All right. Look at his teeth. You know, look at his skin. Uh, Yeah. You know, now look at check him out looking on the carpet, trying to find a, you know, crumb or, or, or crack and what I know is bad. But guess what? Uh, he ain't harming nobody but himself. He ain't harm nobody else. He ain't breaking into anybody's house. He didn't go hold up anybody and, and to get his crack or whatever. Uh, so I don't think he should go to prison for smoking crack. Now, if he wants to get help, I think we should help him, you know, get in a drug treatment. But I don't I think it would be unjust to complicate his problems and, and, and put him into prison where guards will bring him crack, you know, in the prison. Yeah, true story. My my cousin told me when he was alive and he was in prison, 
uh, uh, said that them guards would bring you crack if you were in solitary confinement. And dudes would do stuff just to get in solitary confinement so they can buy drugs off of the guards and whatnot. So I don't think that, you know, uh, putting people in prison ain't, ain't the way to treat, you know, a health issue. And so, yeah, I'm voting not guilty. So that's what jury notification is. And it has always been a tool of the abolitionists, and it's one that we should be wielding now. Tell them people what they want to hear and get on that jury. You just act like you the reddest, whitest, bluest Negro on the planet and, and whatnot. And then when you come time to vote, you just say not guilty. It'll end up in a hung jury at the very least. If you can't convince the other jurors to vote not guilty, well, end up in a hung jury and he won't be going into slavery that day. So, guys. Sounds like a victory for the abolitionists, another tool in our belt to help free yeah. our people and keep them out of prisons, even if it's just one state. Uh, that's one state we didn't have yesterday. So, I love so, yeah, it. I love it. I want more of it. Let's call it a, a win, and uh, we'll go on to our next segment because we're running out of time uh, down the last 20 minutes of the program. And uh, I'd like to give you this victory and uh, lift you up if possible with the story uh, of the woman that is today, our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. It is Women's History Month, so we've been trying to focus on stories from women as well as our abolitionists and profiles. And here is one. a woman convicted of mass slaughter in 1991 on New York City robbery has been exonerated at the prosecutor's conclusion she made a false confession. And it's a beautiful woman on the picture. you got to see it. It's on the New Abolitionist radio page by Jennifer Pelt, Associated Press, New York AP. Five years after Vanessa Gathers told police she had nothing to do with deadly robbery, a detective questioned her again and got a confession that would put Gathers in prison for 10 years. Nearly two decades later, Gathers was cleared Tuesday at the prosecutors conduct, concluded her sense recanted confession was false, peppered with facts that didn't add up. It was made to a detective whose tactics have come under question. I feel great, Gathers 58 said as she left court smiling and wiping tears. As for what she would do next, she said, go on with my life. Gathers had already been freed on parole in 2007, but prosecutors successfully bid to get her manslaughter conviction dismissed frees her of a felony record in association with the death of 71-year-old Michael Shaw. He was beaten in his Brooklyn apartment on November 18, 1991, and died of his injuries five months later. With this exoneration, Vanessa Gathers gets her good name back, Brooklyn District Attorney Kenneth Thompson said. Shout out to Kenneth Thompson. I'm loving that brother right there. Gathers mm-hmm. is the first woman to have her conviction disavowed as Brooklyn prosecutors revisit about 100 cases in one of the most ambitious reviews of its kind in the country. About 70 cases are tied to the same now-retired detective, Louis Scarcella, who denies any wrongdoing. Detective Scarcella followed the law as it relates to taking statements from suspects and did not do anything improper, his lawyers, Alan Abramson and Joel Cohen, said Tuesday. Shaw was a friendly neighborhood figure and Gathers would wave to him when passing but didn't know his name, said one of her lawyers, Lisa Cahill. Prosecutors said Gathers got got into police radar because she matched the description of a suspect in Shaw's death. She'd never had any dealings with police before, Cahill said. Gathers denied involvement, identified a possible suspect, and was released, prosecutors said. Five years later, 
Garcella re-examined the cold case and questioned Gathers again. She confessed on video, though her lawyers say she quickly recanted. She was convicted at a 1998 trial, sentenced to up to 15 years in prison, and lost appeal. The confession was the only evidence against Gathers, prosecutors said, and the refuse found it was riddled with problems. Gathers said she's watched others carry out the attack at around 6 p.m. when Shaw's daughter had seen him unharmed at the 7 p.m. District, District Attorney Mark Hale said Gathers said Shaw had been beaten in a wheelchair when he'd never owned one. She said he uh, she said she'd gone into his pocket and taken $60 and an extremely unlikely sum for him to have had, Hale said. The scenario she acquiesced and confessed to were not, in fact, true, said Hale. Cahill said Scarcella lied to Gathers, including about what evidence he had to get her to confess. Hale said authorities used permissible pressure is the term. In recent years, a number of people who say they were wrongfully convicted decades ago have accused Scarcella of manipulating witnesses and intimidating suspects to produce false evidence. Brooklyn prosecutors have so far abandoned seven convictions, including Gathers, in Scarcella's cases, as well as 11 other convictions that didn't involve him. They are standing by 38 other convictions, 32 of them in Scarcella's cases so far. Her lawyer said Gathers had handled her fight to be cleared with dignity and without bitterness. She is fundamentally a decent woman who has lived more than a decade, more than a decent life her whole life, Bill Cahill said. She is our hero. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you. Salute. 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 As you said, on women's. Yes. Wow. Welcome to Freedom. Man, and Scarcella oh. still uh, is still running around. I mean, he's no longer yep. a cop, but he ain't never had to pay for his crime of enslaving people on false charges and setting people up. That's that just, man, how's that justice? Now, yeah, we want them free, but the people who put them there ought to be a, pay a penalty. She should sue. These people should file a lawsuit against that joker, man, and take his pension and everything he got. Because hmm. he's still collecting it. Criminals being allowed to simply retire like the governor of Flint. I'm just sick of it. He won't even do that. You know, they're just genocidal maniacs, and they destroy lives and murder and kill and slay and maim and brutalize and torture. And then at the end of the day, they go, well, you can retire. Here's your pension. Go on about your business. Thank you for your service. Well, I'm putting a link up on the New Abolitionist radio page just to, because, uh, you know, I created the, the wanted poster for Louis Scarcell a couple of years ago. I mean, this guy, I don't know. I I, I don't want to give these guys any propaganda, you know, any help to boost their, their uh legacy or whatever but this guy's horrible man and, and a lot of these cops are horrible and they had so many scandals throughout the 70s 80s 90s 2000s with these cops just it's ridiculous what these guys do i'm gonna put a link on the new abolitionist radio page of uh old scarcella here in his coney island polar bear club swimsuit him and the old guys that go out into the ocean there on coney island uh butt naked every year in the freezing cold of winter you know, he's doing this. He's a former uh, Coney Island Polar Bear Club president. So, you know, he's accepted and loved member of his community, uh, regardless of the, the carnage he's left in his <laughs> in his career's wake. Wow. But check out that link. 
Would you handle the uh, abolitionist and profile, Brother Yarn? I got that. Sure. Oh, oh you, you got, got it. it. Yeah, it's got it. Okay. I'm sorry. All right. Um, I actually have it pre-recorded, and our abolitionist in profile this week is Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Enjoy. <laughs> Born Matilda Alexa Jocelyn on March 24, 1826 in Cicero, New York, Matilda Jocelyn Gage became one of the leading figures in the women's rights and suffrage movement that began in the mid-1800s. She married Henry Hill Gage in 1845, and together they had five children, one of whom died as an infant. She and her husband were active in the anti-slavery movement, and their home in New York State was reportedly part of the Underground Railroad, which helped black people escape slavery and find freedom. She faced prison for her actions under the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which criminalized assistance to those escaping slavery, but she was not convicted, possibly due to the practice of jury nullification. Unfortunately, not much else is written about her anti-slavery activities. Matilda Jocelyn Gage died on March 18, 1898 in Chicago, Illinois, at the home of one of her daughters. She was a strong supporter of freedom. She is remembered for her work on the behalf of many groups and causes, including women, African Americans, and Native Americans. As a tribute to her life's work, her gravestone reads, There is a word sweeter than mother, home or heaven. That word is liberty. New Abolitionist Radio salutes abolitionist Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Salute. Man. Powerful, powerful women. That's one of the things the I'm ladies. talking about here is that here at New Abolitionist Radio, we're one of the few people that are still saying these names and recognizing their contributions <laughs> and remembering their sacrifices. And uh, I'm very proud to say that we do that every week here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I just want to say, uh, in light of it being National Women's Day, you know, I'm a, I'm a young single man. So, you know, I just want to say that uh, I do love the ladies, and I want to find some of these abolitionist sisters to get involved out here. Where y'all at? This is National Women's Day. We should see more posts on Mother's Day. We see all the love for the mothers. And Father's Day, we see the sisters get love for being mothers and fathers, and we see all these people get their days. So on National Women's Day, I just would love to see a story of a modern-day sister that's out here in an abolitionist position, just out here getting it in. You know, connect with us. Max? Word. <laughs> I don't even know what else to say, man. I got mine. Get yours. <laughs> <laughs> just saying, where are these people that have these interests? You know, let's, let's, let's fight the power. Right to power indeed, man. <laughs> well, we're coming up on our, our last 10 minutes of the program, and we do have the Lotus Profile place coming up after it. So I guess we should move into our final statement. I mean, you guys tend to be a little long-winded sometimes, but 10 minutes is good. <laughs> 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 Brother Scotty, is there anything that you would like to end this evening's uh, conversation with? Yes, yes. I want to talk about being involved in the process, okay, because we are in election season. Uh, right now and today on Black Talk Radio Network's Facebook page somebody posted a little meme and made the comment that you know uh, why do we vote ain't nothing changing for us and this and that and, and what, what have you 
Now, of course, they're talking about federal elections. They're talking about presidents, the CEO of USA Inc. But my response to that is that, you know, I hope that when you go to the polls, if you go to the polls, you know, um, that you are fully informed about who's running for sheriff, who's running for district court judge, who's running for city manager. And, you know, and the reason I say that is because, you know, it's at the local level that we can attack slavery and prevent people from being put into slavery in the first place. All of these terrible stories that we share with you, these are local stories for the people that live there, okay? Uh, you know, Ken Thompson, Ken Thompson, the great work that he's doing up there in New York. Well, Ken Thompson wouldn't be able to set those people free if people didn't turn out to vote to put Ken Thompson in that position to set people free. So, again, I'm not trying to convince you that, you know, the CEO of America will get in there and be able to impact tremendous change and whatnot, although they could, although uh, 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 the president of the United States could issue an executive order setting every enslaved uh, person free that's in federal prisons that's up in there over nonviolent legislated drug crime, so they do have some power. But at the local level, though, you know, that is where the slave catching is occurring, that is where the sentencing people into slavery is occurring. And so we need to be involved in, in thinking about, you know, uh, the local elections and not just focusing on who's becoming president and, and whatnot. All right. Because we see what happened in Ferguson. How in the hell did all these racist white men and women uh, start run a town of what? 80 percent black people? Well, some of the young people that I talked to in Ferguson uh, doing interviews on Black Talk Radio Network told me that, you know, the the people weren't voting. Not only were people not voting, some people, you know, the black community wasn't even putting up candidates and whatnot. OK, so when you don't vote, that's how you get white supremacists running um, with predominantly black town. That's how you get all that slave catching and killing going on in an all-black town, in a predominantly black town, is when you don't participate in the process at the local level and, and identifying these people and whatnot who believe in justice. You know, hey, I, I believe that it was a district court judge. It was either in Mississippi or Alabama where they tried to, uh, uh, because he wouldn't send people into slavery, they started uh, uh, not sending him cases and whatnot. Because they know he wasn't going to go along with putting people into slavery over nonviolent drug crimes. They even had tried to get the Supreme Court to, to uh, remove him from the bench. That man was elected. He was elected. Okay. So, you know, I know people are frustrated with this corrupt system and whatnot. But until the revolution comes... You know, we need to be engaged in everything we can to bring relief to our people and to prevent new uh, slaves, you know, for the new plantation. That's all I got. Thank you, Scotty. You heard it? Right on. Scotty Reed still bringing, you know, dropping the hammer all the way to the end. And I, I understand and I feel him on that point. I just uh, wanted to say uh, R.I.P., to our former first lady, Nancy Reagan, died a couple days ago. So if you're listening to this 
in uh, the podcast format, you know, years later. Uh, this is March 9th, <laughs> 2016, so I guess she died over the pre- uh, previous weekend. But anyway, um, you know, this is one of the uh, architects of the uh, school to prison pipeline, uh, influencing, heavily influencing uh, uh, zero tolerance policies that are a part of the, even like the story we led off with today, where our teenagers are met with zero poli- uh, uh, zero tolerance policies to this day, um, and you know has created fallout that is in in most states across the country, as we talked about, several hundreds of thousands of dollars a year that they're uh, charging you as a taxpayer to uh, incarcerate the youth. So that you know, again, uh, a profit motive and incentive. So this is one of the architects. Um, it was a story that I posted on my personal page, so I'll share it to the New Abolitionist Radio page also. Uh, from uh, Mike.com, M-I-C, uh, Mike.com. It's uh, just talking about Nancy Reagan's uh, legacy and how she hurt, you know, unfortunately, people of color with uh, influencing this zero-tolerance policy. And again, with uh, uh, obviously the whole D.A.R.E. program and say no to drugs and just having a horrible response to finding people addicted to drugs. And now, of course, today we see with the opiate situation that has swept White America and middle class America across this country. These people have special circumstances and medical conditions that are resulting from being on all these prescription drugs. And one of the things that people are doing to self-medicate and the fallout behind it is heroin addiction. So now we're seeing it come full circle. So again, we need allies in every aspect and uh, RIP to Nancy. You know, this is the fallout that is affecting all kind of people. So, uh, peace to the abolitionist, death to the oppressors. Yeah. Rest in Word. peace, Trap Queen. Um, I want to point out the campaign promise that Bernie Sanders made in the last Democratic uh, debate with Hillary Clinton. He said, and he said it was a campaign promise, that by the end of his first term, we would no longer have the largest prison population in the history of the world. Well, that's a big problem. Right now, we have 2.4 million prisoners in U.S. prisons, not counting jails, detention centers, immigration centers, or juvie prisons. The next largest population by pure body count is China, with 1.6 million people in prison. So for Senator Sanders to be telling the truth about a real plan, he would have to release and not replace around a million U.S. prisoners to achieve that goal. Releasing and not replacing an average of nearly a quarter of a million people per year for the next four years. If you mean that, and if you've got a plan, I'm all behind it. One of the reasons why we're conducting the Kill Bill campaign, which is our efforts to expose the criminality of Hillary and Bill Clinton and their associations with the launch of private prisons, uh, particularly Cornell and Wackenhut, and that these are indictable offenses. So, yes, we're working to do that. I can't say that I'm going to endorse any particular candidate at this point, but I will say that I'm 100% behind that kind of a campaign promise. And if you don't hold up to it and we help you win, there is going to be hell to pay. Recognize that. And remember that abolition is a reason for revolution, so we can finally know some damn peace. I got so much trouble on my mind, refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Here's the drama, get wicked. Yeah.